Good day, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is podcast number 43. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Subinoy Das. Dr. Das is the Chief Executive Officer and the Medical Director at the U.S. Institute for Advanced Sinus Care and Research. He is the former Medical Director of the Ohio State University Sinus and Allergy Center, as well as an assistant professor at The Ohio State University. He is widely recognized as one of the nation's best sinus surgeons and has received multiple awards as a U.S. board-certified otolaryngologist, including a presidential citation in 2015 from the American Rhinology Society. In addition, he is a former research associate of the Center of Microbial Pathogenesis at the Research Institute Nationwide Children's Hospital, His NIH-funded research was awarded the 2013 Fowler Award for Top Basic Science Research in Otolaryngology, specifically for his work on detecting the etiologies of sinus infections. We crossed paths at the University of Virginia, where Dr. Das received the Alfred Bolger Award for the top pre-medical student at the university before completing his medical degree at the University of Virginia School of Medicine, where he was elected president of his class, also received Alpha Omega Alpha Honors, and also received the Richard Bowman Scholarship for Top Clinical Performance. He then attended the University of North Carolina for residency and completed a fellowship in advanced sinus surgery and anterior skull-based surgery at the Medical College of Georgia. He is a leader in the United States in minimally invasive sinus surgery and has helped to develop leading instruments and techniques used in sinus surgery, including working on diagnostic tests and therapies to reduce the use of antibiotics for sinus disease, advanced computer-guided surgery systems, hydrodrabedment therapies for sinus disease, and custom molecular-based therapies to avoid sinus surgery. So as you can tell by that last bit, I'm very excited to talk to somebody who is more interested in finding out etiology and how to mitigate risk than they are in doing surgery. I know Shu for many years now, as again, we crossed paths at the University of Virginia and had many common threads throughout our lives. And it was an absolute pleasure for me to interview him for this podcast because, again, we have a like-minded view of the world. I'm less interested in the sinus surgery, per se, which he is an expert in, and more interested in that part of his research that's involved in the upstream reasons as to the why, the anatomy, the pathophysiologic disease causes that are mitigatable? What can we do upstream to reduce the risk of having mucus development, inspissation, biofilm development, all the other things that we're going to speak to that then therefore could reduce the risk of developing sinus disease as we age, or frankly at any age that you have significant risk for. It's mostly teenagers and up. Because in my world, That means you're going to use less antibiotics, which, again, he is a big fan of. Because we all know now that although there are amazing drugs, these pharmaceutical interventions for bacterial disease are driving other problems downstream of the microbiomes in the body that then therefore leading to dysbiosis of different parts of the body, including the lung, the gut, the sinus tract, everywhere which then leads to long-term disease of the autoimmune type, of the cancer type, and of many, many, many other types. So from my perspective, this is going to be a conversation that we will probably need to look at over and over again over time 
because if there's one thing that's happened in the past 100 years to humans is that we're seeing more and more bacterial infections. The reasons are, as stated many times in this podcast, mostly related to our lifestyle choices. COVID shined a really big spotlight on this, and we're going to get into that in this podcast, as to what did we learn in this unregulated experiment of shutting everything down, keeping people away from each other, hygiene. You know, there's a lot that went on that showed us who's the big player in sinus disease, ear infections, you know, what's going on here so we can now have a better understanding of risk mitigation again, because for me, that's the big piece. What are the evolutionary reasons as to why we have sinuses, right? There's got to be a reason why they're there, right? So what are they there for? And then why do they get disrupted? Why do they become dysfunctional? And how do we stop that process from happening? So with that being said, I'm really excited to share this conversation with my good friend, Dr. Shu Das. All right, Shu. Pleasure to have you on the show today. I know you're over there in Ohio and uh, just want to say thanks for jumping on. And I'm excited to talk about all things sinus and otitis media. Yeah, it's a pleasure to uh, be here. Uh, Christy Bell has been one of my favorite people, favorite doctors, favorite pediatricians. And I'm just honored and excited to get to spend some time with you. Perfect. Let's do it. So our our, our guests are going to be getting a tour de force on the understandings of what's going on inside your head. Um, kids clearly in the pediatric world, lots of uh, otitis media and also a fair amount of sinusitis, especially as they get older in age. So let's start with the basics. Let's, let's break this down. Why, what are the sinuses? Number one, number two, how does it all connect to your nose? And then where does that all play into your ears and the backside of this through your mouth and the, the station tube function. Let's sort of dive into the the anatomy. And then from there, take into, you know, where do, how do we develop problems in this space? ENT, you know, became a field because our ears, nose, and throat are so interconnected. Um, we have uh, in our nose, um, this is a view of kind of the side of our, of our nose split uh, that people can see, but Air goes into our nose. Oh, one interesting thing to me is, you know, when you put your finger in your nose, we've my, your, my whole life, you always thought air went up your nose. But in reality, air goes in and it goes straight back, which, you know, <laughs> I really didn't realize until I became an ENT resident. So anyway, <laughs> um, air comes in and goes back. But we have this tube right here called our eustachian tube. And that tube um, connects the back of our throat to our ears. And so this uh, tube uh, creates this space. Now in our eardrum, in order for a drum to work, you need to have a lot of uh, trapped air on both sides of the drum. So the drum vibrates. So our ear needs to have air that's on the other side. The problem with that is that our body absorbs oxygen or our cells absorb oxygen. And so if you just have a one pocket of trapped air over time, our body will use up all the oxygen and it becomes a vacuum. So we need a tube, you know, we evolved this tube that allows us to replenish all the air on the backside of our eardrum. Anyway, this creates a common space for viruses or bacteria to be able to connect to our ear. And this is right in the back of our throat. Uh, so a lot of problems from our sinuses can drain down the back of our throat. Bacteria from our throat can come into our sinuses. 
Uh, in children, um, our eustachian tubes are a little more flat, and then as adults, they become a little more angled. So gravity, you know, works against children, and so they get a lot more ear infections. But over time, when your sinuses are lower, uh, this bacteria from the back of your throat tend to go into your sinuses. So that's kind of uh, what our sinus cavities are. Now, another important thing is our nose is um, this is what we consider our nose or our, our rhinology, rhinitis is the central portion of our airway. And then we have all these air spaces around the sides of our nose that are called our sinuses. We, we are not sure why people have sinuses. We think it was, there's this dinosaur, Parasophilus, that um, started to communicate with other dinosaurs. And so they think our sinuses increase the resonance frequency of sound that comes through our nose to allow it to travel further distances. That's one theory. And another theory was uh, the sinuses lighten our skull to allow us to stand upright and allowed uh, animals to be able to walk on land a little easier. That's another one. And another one is a trapped air pocket really um, prevent is a great um, uh, kind of like a crumple zone on a car that prevents our brain from getting crushed if we ever hit the front of our head. And so those are the three best theories as to why we have sinuses. But the sinuses are all these air pockets. We have one right above our eyes called our frontal sinuses. We have uh, one under our eyes called our maxillary sinuses. In between our eyes are called our ethmoid sinuses. And we have these ones deep in the back called our sphenoid sinuses. So that's basically kind of a primer on our anatomy. And, and, and the timing of development. So as you're stating, the tympanic membrane leads to this ear canal that has eustachian tube as part of the backstop for that, like you're saying, that movement of air for oxygen and, and just the drum to do its job. And then it starts out flat and shorter and thinner. So it's easier to get plugged up with mucus or whatever in an infection. We'll get into that in a little bit. As you get older, it becomes more gravity um, beneficial gravity with it being more angled down a little bit longer and a little bit wider. Sinuses are not all present at birth. So what's the time course of developmental, the developmental stages of sinus, sinuses cavities? Yeah, that's a great point. And so uh, for uh, our sinuses are one of the few things that are uh, fully present at birth. Uh, when we're born, we just have these little tiny buds where our molars are sitting uh, in our face and almost no sinuses at all. And from the age of zero to six, our um, maxillary sinuses start to get bigger as our face starts to develop. We have this little inbudding into our sphenoid sinus that slowly uh, develops um, into a sphenoid sinus. Our frontal sinuses don't even start to develop until about age five or six. And then they slowly from air pressure um, start to invaginate into our frontals. Um, and, you know, about 20% of people actually have one uh, frontal sinus that's very aplastic or hasn't formed at all. Um, but yes, and, and uh, another interesting fact is we do get bigger and bigger sinuses as we age for the rest of our lives. So you do get more air in your head as you get older. And so oh. but, uh, that uh, is a common joke we uh, always tell, but uh, our sinuses aren't present at birth and um, get bigger as we get older. So that's another reason why you don't really see a lot of sinus infections until people hit their teens and their adult years. 
and it's real, really limited to kind of throat and ear infections for younger children. Yeah, and I want to put a sticky note on that because that's a common misconception that I see all the time in clinic, especially in the ER where they're diagnosed with a, a chronic rhinosinusitis in a four-year-old, a three-year-old, and and that I think is very problematic. So let's put a let's put a sticky note and come back to that. Sure. The other thing I want to talk touch on anatomically because I think it's going to become important later on is describe the osteomyoidal complex and why it matters at all. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we have this area in our nose, um, just uh, lateral to our middle turbinate, um, which is a common junction point of this model. This uh, comes off where our sinuses from our forehead uh, drain down into this area. Our sinuses from our cheek, our maxillary sinus drain up. Uh, it actually is interesting. All the mucus in our body, uh, we have these little fine hairs on our lining called cilia and the, that actually pushed the mucus in a particular direction and it, it from our cheek it actually goes up out of a hole called our natural ostia to our maxillary sinus and then back down our throat but our our body is actually directing this river of mucus exactly where it wants but from our cheek it all comes to this one area um uh, from our forehead, it comes to this one area, and from the front part of our ethmoid sinuses, our anterior ethmoids all come into that one area. So there's this one area that uh, radiographers used to call the osteomiatal complex, which is where the ostea of the maxillary sinus and the middle meatus, those are kind of near each other. Uh, that complex, if it's blocked or obstructed, is a very... Um, uh, ominous sign that you might be uh, in trouble for getting a sinus infection. So uh, sinus doctors, we look at that area very closely on x-rays and films to see if that area might be problematic for somebody getting a lot of sinus infections. Yeah, perfect. And I, you know, I tend to think of all this stuff from an evolutionary perspective. Why is it this way? What's going on? And and to understand the anatomy is a key to understanding why something works in a certain way. So to your point, cilia, these beating hairs, we have them all over. We have them in the ears. We have them in the in the nasopharynx. We have them in the lungs, all, all over the place with a function of moving mucus or moving particles in a direction towards clearance. And so speak to that a little bit. So the anatomy of the epithelial cells and why they do that. What's the evolutionary advantage of having hairs that can beat in a direction to clear stuff? Yeah, that is exactly right. Um, uh, from my knowledge, um, we um, our immune system kind of evolved uh, from, you know, uh, the types that we're calling them, we think all separately evolved, but we have this type of immune system that we call the innate immune system, which is just kind of the local defenses uh, of a cell and how it used to protect itself from uh, attackers. And then we have these uh, parts of our immune system called the adaptive immune system, which was basically like an army that, you know, for whatever reason, got stored in our bone marrow and our spleen. Uh, and th those army cells then go all over the body to try to help and fight uh, things. But the um, local defense, the innate immune system, um, it basically, um, bacteria often like to form what's called a biofilm where they like to stick on a surface and they like to um, uh, uh, basically turn off the defenses of a cell and they basically use it like a parasite. They take all the nutrients. They don't necessarily 
all of them want to kill the cell, but they want to use the cell's energy to support their own um, uh, life. And so to prevent these bacteria from sticking, our body developed an ability to create um, mucus that's this really uh, interesting uh, molecule. On the bottom of this mucus, it's a, what we call an ampipathic molecule. It's a, it's, it, it dissolves in water. And so the cilia can beat and push it, but on the top, are these all these hydrophobic molecules that are basically like a fat that block bacteria from being able to stick to our surface. And so our body has this ability to um, prevent bacteria and particles, pollen, viruses, all these uh, fungus, uh, uh, parasites, all these things that are trying to get into our cells, they get stuck on this blanket of mucus and they just get stuck. And then the blanket slowly pushes it all through our sinuses down into our stomach, which is the massive killer, you know, kind of like a James Bond movie where you fall into the acid. Uh, it basically gets, you fall down into our stomach that uh, has a pH of one, destroys all these things, breaks them up into tiny particles. And then our immune system samples them even more and says, oh, if I ever see a little one of this particle, we're going to attack it. But basically that was the first primitive way our cells would protect themselves would be to create this mucus and then push it into our stomach. Love it. And and so for the guests listening, you know, I think of biofilms, like if you walk up to a creek and you see a rock and there's this green slime coming off a rock, if you touch the green slime, you feel that, that's a biofilm. If you measure right around that slime outside it, you won't find many pathogens or, or organisms. But if you measure inside the slime, it's filled with them. That's essentially how they wall themselves off to protect themselves to do their job. And they're trying to do that all the time, real time in us. And we have our own defense mechanism, as you stated, clearly the innate immune system, which is built up of these white blood cells, but also these mechanisms, these anatomical clearance mechanisms to take anything trapped, not just bacteria or viruses, actually, you know, particulate matter, cigarettes. That's why I think cigarette smokers cough so much is because they have so much mucus trying to clear all that that junk out of their body yeah, out there that, constantly that's absolutely clear right that. yeah you're um we have you're right double-stranded dna different particles we know endotoxin these are potent stimulators of um our innate immune system and uh different foods for example can cause our body to um uh make more mucus or make less mucus um one of the one of the uh, top researchers in our field noam cohen his uh uh, identified these bitter receptors. So if we eat bitter foods, they can actually cause us to make more ciliary movement. And so that um, we're not sure, I'm not sure the reason why, but um, we definitely have a part of our immune system that is all about just local defenses. And our mucus is, is a extremely important uh, defense. Uh, and as you know, um, better than me, people who are born with a disease where they don't make the cilia properly, they get terrible sinus infections. And so, right. uh, yeah, uh, I think of ciliary dyskinesia and also yeah. cystic fibrosis would be the other big one where yeah. you, that, they, they have all that uh, inspissated mucus that's there. So let's start segueing because you, you sort of laid into the perfect segue here. So now that we understand sort of the anatomy, what are the upstream reasons we start developing more mucus and more reasons to have a favorable environment for bacteria to grow into sinus infection or otitis media? 
what is going on that drives this, right? So the yeah. endotypes, the allergic rhinitis is the cow milk protein intolerance. Just go down the reasonings and the whys and how we can, as a society, start to understand the upstream triggers of disease. Yeah. I mean, gosh, we could talk on this for hours. Um, the um, the number one thing that that I, that my background is, um, uh, is in a normal human, I, I really think viruses are a major um problem for uh, creating thicker mucus and for creating uh, this problem where bacteria get into areas that they don't uh, go. Um, I had the fortune of working with Lauren Bakelitz, who was, uh, she's one of the top researchers in otitis media and particularly on a bacterium called Haemophilus. But the, the, her life's work has basically shown that a virus um, invades our cells. And when it's able to invade our cells, uh, you need to have a lot of viruses that can break through the mucus. But when they are able to, they turn off um, our DNA and cellular machinery that produce our mucus or they stun our cilia. And another ingenious thing they do is they upregulate different receptors that are called the cognate receptor that cause bacteria to migrate. And so they, um, they, they cause complete havoc in our nose. Uh, with the end goal of trying to allow to buy themselves time to replicate and then create an immune response to something else, which is the bacteria that is, you know, typically um, colonizing our throat. Uh, and then our body's response to that bacteria allows us to blow out a mucus and snot and get it, blow it all out and aerosolize it. And it allows the virus to go to somebody else uh, undamaged to um, uh, infect somebody else. So, uh, viruses are a huge uh, aspect, but then uh, to your point, um, uh, another massive problem we're having is um, our immune system for the first three years of our life is a very different immune system than it is afterwards. We um, have this gland in our body called our thymus gland, and that is teaching our body what is normal and healthy and what is not normal and healthy. And so a um, long time ago, we used to have uh, exposure to um, a huge amount of bacteria and um, uh, different particles that uh, was just, you know, part of uh, normal growing up between zero and three. And our, our immune system would develop um, kind of a baseline that these bacteria are okay. Um, uh, we're going to develop ant blocking antibodies against any part of our immune system that are attacking this part, and we would kind of establish a baseline. Now, um, because you know we have uh, water treatment facilities, we have antibiotics in our foods, we have um, uh, basically no uh, uh, fungal proteins or parasitic proteins that our body sees. Children between the ages of zero and three are probably exposed to the least amount of bacteria now ever in history. I mean, we didn't even know know what bacteria was until 1880, and you know, 1920 we started developing treatment uh, water uh, treatment facilities. 1940s we discovered antibiotics. 1960s we're pumping antibiotics all into our food. So before 1880, for the hundreds of thousands of years, you know, humans have lived, we were exposed to a ton of bacteria. Now that we aren't even the smallest bits of bacteria, the smallest bits of um, uh, uh, of a, a microbe can create a huge immune response because our immune system just gets titrated to think we need to be bacteria free our whole life. And then um, 
in, in terms of foods, I, I really, and uh, gosh, I'm speaking to somebody who knows way better than me, but um, uh, my impression is we have now so many preservatives in our foods and we have foods that have been uh, treated to be able to tolerate a lot of preservatives and the, you know, they can grow in the setting of preservatives that we are in eating and in our bloodstream, we have all these um, chemicals that can denature proteins. And so at, at, when we inhale a pollen molecule, today it's a tree pollen molecule, but then when it mixes with the you know formaldehyde in our bloodstream, which came from our chicken nuggets that we had um, at a fast food place, that changes that pollen molecule when it hits that part of the bloodstream to look something different. So now it's looking like a fly protein. So now it's looking like a um, fungal protein. So our immune system before used to sample um, uh, small molecules and to get an idea of what is potentially attacking us. Now, because we have so many preservatives and uh, so many different chemicals in our foods that it it's, it's this constant mix of different chemicals that it's constantly seeing. So our immune system can't get a handle on what is normal and what is abnormal. And so we're getting just in the last 20 years, a 14 fold increase in what we call atopy, where it's, you know, allergic and autoimmune types of reactions because I think our, our nose just is so confused because it doesn't see much healthy bacteria anymore. And instead it sees all these new different particles. Yeah. And, and I, and, and to your point, that's uh it's a very deep conversation as to why our tolerance is broken, but it clearly is broken. And one of the things that we're seeing the most in pediatrics where you probably don't see as much, but you see some of it is this whole world of, of not, and not antibody IgE mediated allergy, but a, a non IgE mediated milk protein intolerance where the human child at birth within uh, four weeks of age is starting to react to the casein protein of the dairy, which is the curd part of the, the nursery rhyme, the, 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 the milk and curd, the whey. And, yeah. and they're reacting so much so that it, it is causing overall irritability of the mucus lining of the gut of the mucus lining of the sinus tract and the ears. So these kids are coming into us uh, between the ages of six months and two years with recurrent ear infections or current problems. And when you pin it down, all you have to do is remove the dairy and they get better. So proof of concept. Okay, fine. I don't need a biomarker antibody. Although some of these kids will have IgG4 positive. The yeah. bottom line is we now know regardless of the why, which is you know, depending on how many people you talk to, it's a really difficult argument to decide the why our tolerance is so broken. I, I agree with you 100% that it is a reduction in in exposure to bacterial uh, endotoxin and ex overexposure to chemical toxins. So it's that yeah. it's that bifurcation in the historical yeah. reality that's driving everything wrong, which is forming these neoantigens in our system. So our immune system is overreacting to these new proteins that they've never seen. But it's sort of fascinating now that we live in this world where everything's on the rise in the mm -hmm. wrong way. And, and mucus development is the byproduct of this reality. And then we're then seeing these secondary bacterial infections. And speak to what you've seen, because we talked about this offline beforehand. Yeah. Post-COVID, pre-COVID, yeah. you went through something, or during COVID, sorry, you went through something with your volume of cases seen, and then post-COVID. What was the story there? Yeah, um, definitely. Oh, and just one point to add to further add to you, what you said. Um, we have always known, and I haven't fully understood why, but milk thickens your mucus, you know, and it may be that we are just like you said, the intolerance to cow milk 
is even higher than we could have potentially imagined. And so many people are intolerant. It um, increases our mucus from some immune reaction somehow, or it could be a weird chemical reaction. I honestly don't know, but we do know milk thickens your uh, mucus. And so the problem earlier, like you were saying, when you're you're very young and your eustachian tubes are so thin, if that mucus gets thick, it is so easy for everything to get plugged up. And then you could get trapped mucus in your ear. And then that is a, you know, a broth for a bacterial infection, you know, a couple of bacteria um, or viruses to kind of um, be able to survive uh, being, um, you know, eaten up in that fluid. Then um, another interesting thing, uh, a, a musician, she's a singer, a friend of mine told me is, apples they are like musicians and singers are taught to eat apples it's an astringent um and it helps thin your mucus and i have no idea why that is but so that's most likely due to quercetin um uh, there's a chemical in the rind of the apple called quercetin which is a it, it has a blocking reaction to histamine and and the antibody and the uh, uh, immune response to to IgE mediated disease. So we use a supplement in kids called Dehist Junior, which is which has quercetin and two other herbs in it as a main complex, and it's actually quite good stuff. So yeah, that's most likely what that is. That's my assumption based on I what you. I know. Yeah, apples. no, that's great. But but to your overall point, yeah, definitely the foods you eat can really make you more susceptible or in some cases less susceptible to, you know, getting ear infections. That is definitely true. And then uh, to your second question about COVID and the big changes we saw, um, you know, I've taken care of people with chronic sinusitis my whole career. Um, and I was just struck by um, the um, uh, use of isolation and masks. And, you know, when we were very fearful of COVID um, and, and no one, you know, it was a lockdown and no one was going out. Um, there were two things that also happened as a byproduct of that. One, the cases of influenza, which are normally in the hundreds of thousands to millions in this country, went down to supposedly, you know, like in the 28 record cases recorded in 2020 or, you know, a very small handful. Now we might've missed some of those, but but the it is true, the overall uh, cases of influenza just uh, skyrocketed down. And from that, we assume a lot of viruses that require, you know, droplet, large droplets to promulgate and need a lot of virions to be able to uh, replicate effectively in your body. A lot of those viruses went down. So in some ways, if you didn't get COVID in 2020, you were exposed to the least amount of viruses that you have in your life. At, from a, a population standpoint, when we would go to our meetings um, uh, online, uh, all of the sinus doctors in the country, there's maybe about 200 of us who are in academic rhinology, we were all commenting on how our volume of sinus cases have plummeted and to the point where people were seeing maybe one third or half the volume of patients that they would typically see, even in their patients who they were seeing all, you know, month after month with what they thought was intractable chronic sinusitis that couldn't get any better. These people were, you know, now uh, not coming up. Part of it could have been a fear of the doctor, but a lot of it was, you know, we were calling them. They're like, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. I've actually never felt as good as I've ever felt now that I'm using a mask all the time. So that it taught us that viral infections are really recurrent viral infections are a lot more harmful than, than we ever thought. Um, even the minor colds, the rhinoviruses, the coronaviruses we used to think was a minor cold, um, 
uh, all these minor, you know, viruses really added up to a lot of immune dysfunction. And then afterwards, um, uh, and I honestly haven't uh, heard a good explanation until you kind of mentioned it, Chris, was like our whole um, antibody kind of uh, uh, platform of what protects us against different things in the world um, got kind of a breather maybe for this year or two. And so maybe our body kind of downregulated a lot of our our uh, B cell protection um, in our body. But this year I have been just bombarded by patients who are getting sick and sick and sick. It's like virus after virus after virus. I feel like six major viruses, RSV. I thought adults couldn't get RSV and I'm seeing people suffer from RSV this year. Um, uh, the flu, COVID right. again for the third or fourth time, but now it's you know kind of like a cold for them. But uh, COVID, flu, uh, rhinovirus, uh, norovirus, I saw really bad, um, RSV, and then a couple of viruses that I have no idea what are going on, but everyone is flooding my clinic, antibiotic after antibiotic, you know, Medrol dose pack after Medrol dose pack. We are just seeing all these flare-ups of chronic sinusitis. It's like people are like, well, I got a benefit in uh, COVID and now I'm having to pay for it, but it's all really just turned my head on my understanding of immunology and what protects us. So, yeah, I thought it was the biggest unpredicted study of all time, right? So you take yeah. an entire global population and shut them down for a period of time. The, the, this is a complete aside, but the yeah. pictures of the cities uh -huh. when nobody was in them for eight weeks outside yeah. animals returned, things started yeah. growing where they hadn't been. This yeah. just goes to show when humans make ourselves extinct because of our stupidity, the world's yeah. fine. It's going to love the fact that we're gone. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and the point you mentioned about smoking, um, it, your your thoughts are definitely true. When I visited my family in New Delhi for the first time, the air pollution in New Delhi is in on, on another level uh, compared to the rest of the world. I mean, it is so thick there, you can't see the sun, but they right. have what they call this New Delhi crud, which is your back of your throat is just constantly running. But when COVID came, the air completely cleared up in um in new delhi and all these people in india were like for the first time my bronchitis is gone my sinuses yeah. are better and so air pollution is definitely a major component of um asthma bronchitis sinusitis you know from an empiric level we knew this from you know the clean air act saying look how much better we made the world but nobody really gets that on a individual level um right i never really thought of that but um, you know, the large data uh, can uh, says that having clean air makes a dramatic impact on a community. But COVID taught me that with how um, and how pleasant it was to walk outside or, you know, go outside. Yeah. The air was just so much cleaner in Columbus and throughout the world that it, it makes a massive difference. Yeah. And, and, and this is so fascinating when you saw this stuff go on, I had forever thought that allergies were such a major trigger of infection. Mm -hmm. And, and to your point, we didn't see many kids during the spring of 2020, 2021, having a lot of bacterial infections, even though allergies were raging. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's putting another you know, ribbon on the theory that you're stating is that viruses are the main player in everything when it comes to bacterial risk of time. And and I think it's probably in this case, now that we're back to the reality, we're going to get into that in a second. 
now the viruses are back and now the the stacking effect of the viral disease and the allergic disease is what makes everything so problematical. So allergies in on themselves are not nearly as problematical as viruses and and then less so than viruses plus allergies. And, And to the whole antibody thing, I think this is super fascinating. You know, COVID showed that antibodies wane anywhere between eight and, you know, eight weeks and and 24 weeks post disease, right? Well, all viruses do this. And the reason they do it is because if they didn't, your your blood would turn to sludge with all the proteins in it. So the body has to wax and wane the antibodies that we make. And so when we had such a long period of time where no one got sick, everyone's blood was just basically devoid of antibodies. We had the T and B cells in memory. They had the knowledge to go out and fight, but they didn't have any circulating antibodies. So the viral load was able to get up higher because we had no circulating antibodies to catch the viruses quickly. So everyone's getting sick back to back to back. So just like you, I'm seeing more ear infections, more, you know, sinus infections than the last eight months than probably the previous 20 years. I mean, I'm sickened yeah. by the amount of antibiotics I'm using. Actually, it annoys the crap yes. out of me, <laughs> me because, I, because I know the downstream risks like you do of what we're yeah. doing to people by giving them antibiotics. But the flip That's side right. is if we don't, if we don't treat them, it's You're another trying, problem. Yes, right? so yes. We're stuck. You're, it's exactly how I felt. Um, and you're totally right. It's your your comments about the largest world's unplanned experiment are so right. It um, it is uh, and and another thing we've it's also synced the world. You know, like we um might have had this chronic stream of people who are you know had different time points, but when everybody shut down all at the same time, it feels like the hospitals that got flooded at, on March of 2020, and now they had this lull where everyone was okay because, like you said, our our resident immune to function was probably down at that point and then came right yeah. back. So it's like the world is on a roller coaster that's synchronized now and we're just getting floods of people as a result. Right, right. All right. So now I'll shift gears. I sure. love it. Um, you know, you know me, I'm a food first guy, a hundred percent. So I'm going to tell every single person who's willing to listen, eat super healthy, avoid foods that potentially trigger you to get worse, especially dairy if you're sensitive to it. Let's take that off the table because I think everybody knows that's a big piece of understanding this disease process. Yeah. Moving forward from there, uh-huh. what would you start to say to all of your patients, moms of kids, uh, anybody who's doing it? How do you counsel folks to prevent themselves from getting sinus mm-hmm. disease, prevent themselves from getting otic disease, prevent themselves from getting anything that r- would land into your world of, of ENT? Yeah, that... Uh... I completely second your thought that food, food health is probably the best uh, uh, preventative strategy for um, keeping your sinuses and respiratory mucosa healthy. Um, It's not a hundred percent, you know, and you know, there are definitely people who have genetic forms of sinusitis and otitis and they, no matter what foods they eat, they're going to be sick and are people who get terrible viruses despite being super healthy. So it's not everybody, but it is the best thing you can do. I think the number two best thing are vitamin D levels. Um, you know, the, it, you, it's striking to me that multiple sclerosis and chronic sinusitis almost have a geographic belt. And it's um, uh, when I was practiced in Georgia and Virginia, North Carolina, I didn't see so much of this, what, you know, I might say is type one immune chronic sinusitis. I saw a lot more fungal problems, you know, from, from uh, being in the South, but definitely not as many of 
these type one problems. And up here, I see a lot more type one problems. In Columbus, for example, two thirds of us are deficient in vitamin D levels. And so getting sunlight, exercising, um, allowing your lungs to clear all that interstitial fluid. And, you know, as a result, it pumps a lot of interstitial fluid. Um, uh, those are, are very helpful. Uh, and then the number three thing that I think uh, is helpful um, is there's two things that I think are hygiene for adults. It's much harder in children, but one thing is definitely helpful in children, but really hot, steamy showers are really helpful for your sinus and ear health. Um, the steam really hydrates the mucus, so it makes it a lot thinner and it lets, lets it flow and work better so it doesn't get stuck in all those tight areas. And um, uh, the you know, there's a study that came out now that says we have these particles in our nose called exosomes. And these exosomes are produced and they trap a lot of viruses and allow us to process the viral particles. And even a five degree drop in temperature in your nose almost dramatically reduces your exosome production. And so keeping your nose warm seems to really help its immune health. And so hot, steamy showers, especially when viruses are flying around or, you know, you're starting to get, get sick just at the beginning, um, our body, a lot of the viruses need our mucus to back up somewhere to be able to create the bacterial immune response so they can get out. And so if you can keep things flowing, um, you can often uh, ward off the severity or maybe even completely, you know, the secondary problems of a virus. And then those are the two, uh, yeah, probably the one, two, and three, food, getting sunlight and vitamin D or supplementing with vitamin D if you're low and three are, you know, a lot of steamy showers. This is kind of facetious, but the best place I've seen for sinus health is the beach. You know, there's a lot of salt water that breaks over the waves and you inhale a lot of salt water. You get a lot of sun, you know, you're happy, your mood is better. You know, if you're in a bad mood, your steroid levels get whacked, you know, out of whack in your body. And so, I, I mean, I'm kind of half joking, but really one of the best things I tell my people who are really sick is maybe consider a vacation going to the beach and, you know, sitting by the waves and uh, inhaling a lot of salt water. Yeah. It's like a little, it's like a little wave enema or wave douche to your, <laughs> yeah, to your, yeah, to your yeah. sinuses. Yeah. Right. The, I, I, I agree. And the, and the beauty of that salt water is it's, you know, it keeps everything nice and clean as well. Right. And I know you touched on this already, um, but, you know, clearly avoiding, any kind of particulate matter. So I tend to tell folks, you know, avoid uh, glade plugins, avoid cigarette smoke, vaping, all those yeah. things that could predispose you to more issues. And then yeah. let's speak to the whole mold thing a little bit. I think it's called, what is it called? AFP, um, AFR. What, what do you, yeah. what's the story with mold? Cause it's not always a true allergy, is it? Right. No. Yeah. Mold is a really challenging invader for the humans. We, we, I, I, I am aware of, five different types of immune reactions that can uh, be caused by mold. And if you are um, sensitive to one mold, it's so cross-reactive to every other mold that we can't even consider immunotherapy or um, some of the uh, uh, tactics we use to try to help people with mold sensitivity. But mold um, in your sinuses can cause, you know, an allergy like a, an IgE, what we call an IgE mediated reaction is what we call allergies. Uh, definitely can cause an IgG mediated reaction, like you're saying, an NF-kappa B mediated 
allergic reaction, um, it can create this very strange uh, phenomenon that you were asking me about called allergic fungal rhinosinusitis, AFRS or AFS. Um, that's not an allergy at all. It's where our body makes this eosinophilic paste to um, uh, an allergy to a fungal particle. We at the highest level, we think it's these fungal particles that get embedded into a bacterial biofilm. And so, it, you know, they can be live or dead, but our body then has a TH2 mediated response to the fungal particle, even though it's encased in a bacterial biofilm. So we're, your body's not working to get rid of the bacteria. And so it perpetuates this vicious, you know, continuous immune reaction where your body, all the products of your eosinophils create this paste. And it's this terrible disease where your sinuses fill with this peanut buttery kind of paste. We call it peanut butter mucin that uh, uh, starts to uh, pressure ulcer all over your body and can actually erode holes into your brain and into your sinuses. So it's a really terrible problem. Much common um, in uh, poorer areas uh, where um, uh the, there's more potential for water damage and more uh, more common in the south. And so um, those are uh, problems that I saw a lot when I was on, uh, on faculty at the Medical College of Georgia. But that's a unique type of response to mold. And then some people can get um, these chronic granulomatous reactions to mold. We see that. Africa, that happens a lot more. And then uh, there are people who have um, uh, leukemia or they're on a biologic that uh, um, uh, affects your uh, TH2 immune system, and they can get an invasive form of uh, 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 an invasive uh, reaction to mold, which can be life-threatening within 24 hours. In fact, if you have what's called invasive fungal sinusitis, unfortunately, it's about a 75% chance of dying within the next day or two. And we, yeah. we see those in people who are getting chemotherapy or um, have severe diabetes. Yeah. And to your point, the number one thing to do is just avoid the stuff if you can. Yeah. Um, do you recommend like sinus rinses, neti pot uh, in those cases or are too difficult to treat once it gets to that paste style? Yeah. Um, that sinus rinses and neti pots are a two-edged two sword. They're, they're good for people who um, have had sinus surgery and, you know, and are potentially getting some crusting. That large volume can wash it out. If you're otherwise healthy, um, our mucus, not only do we have this uh, the mucus ciliary blanket we were talking about to wash away your particles, but our, our uh, epithelial cells, the lining of our nose, they secrete these molecules called host defense peptides and um, uh, these other surfactants that basically not only do they uh, condition that mucus, but they basically are prebiotics to pre cause certain bacteria to uh, coat the surface, which crowds out other bad bacteria. So when you rinse your nose with the saline, um, you're washing out those helpful proteins also. So for if a healthy person should not uh, wash their nose with salt water uh, unless um, they are getting frequently ill. And now if you have chronic sinusitis, the alternative of being uh, a dysregulated immune system versus chronically washing and kind of resetting, but decreasing your innate immune defenses a little bit, but washing out all those bad cytokines, that could be helpful for a certain group of people. But um, for people who have not had surgery and 
otherwise are healthy, you should really only rinse with that salt water if you feel something stuck in your nose or maybe in the first day or two of a viral infection to help get that thick mucus out. And then it, that salt water might actually actually help destroy some of the viral particles in your nose. I think that's really important for people to hear because I, 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 again, am a big evolutionary fan. And if we start to take away the natural mechanisms of our human body to fight and thwart disease, again, assuming you don't have some problem with your immune system or your mucosary clearance, but if you are normal, healthy, like you're stating, neti potting or sinus rinsing on a regular basis is a terrible idea. 100% agree. And then, so that brings up a little bit more of a nuance to the question. So an acute sinusitis, mm -hmm. first of all, give me the, the, the textbook definition of acute sinusitis. Cause I know now with the whole world of, of viral DNA sampling, we mm -hmm. see, you know, rhinovirus is at 20 days out. They're still picking up DNA. So you can theoretically have congestion from a virus for two to three weeks in kids, you know, What's the textbook definition of when we should consider it a bacterial sinusitis? And when I use the word sinusitis, folks, understand that that just means inflammation of the sinuses. You have to add bacterial if you truly believe it is caused by a pathogen of bacteria or fungal. So whenever anyone says sinusitis, it could be viral sinusitis. Mm -hmm. So give me the yeah. textbook definition of sinus. Yeah. Well, I mean, I there's this is what I love to study and have spent my whole year studying. So there's kind of two def I'll give you three definitions. Uh, one is the simple, and we break it up, like you said, as to a viral sinus infection or a bacterial sinus infection. Um, and we break that up into acute, like you're just, you're otherwise healthy and it just happens. So now you have an, a, you're sick for a short time. And we break that up into chronic, like, unfortunately, you just suffer from sinuses for a long time. Then, um, the textbook definition, you know, uh, was actually developed at UVA. Um, uh, there's this doctor, Dr. Pick Caranta, who, um, and Jack Waltney, they uh, followed a, a viral infection and kind of created a time course of, uh, of it. But basically, a virus infects somebody, and in the first day or two, you kind of spike a fever, not necessarily super high, but you kind of spike this fever. Then you develop congestion, a sore throat, drainage, um, and kind of facial pressure all over, kind of symmetric, but your symptoms are starting to go down for the next uh, seven days. And then hopefully 85% of people, we think um, everything goes away, maybe a cough and some eustachian tube dysfunction linger on, but uh, you're gonna get better in about two to three weeks. That was kind of the standard time course. Then um, what we called, so we called that acute, an acute viral rhinosinusitis or a upper respiratory infection or upper viral respiratory infection. Those are all the medical terms that you might hear that. Then people talked about, and the reason they talked about this is because uh, at first we were giving antibiotics to all these people. You know, we were worried that they might, it might blossom into a bacterial infection. You could die from bacterial infection and um, uh, we didn't want anyone to die. And so that was in the 1950s and 60s. Then we realized, gosh, all these people seem to be getting worse and you know, starting to develop bacteria that are now very resistant to um, our antibiotics. So we had this movement to say, look, 85% um, of people don't need antibiotics with a virus. You I mean, it doesn't make any sense. The antibiotic doesn't even work on the virus. So why are we giving this antibiotic? 
So we then started the textbook, the medical textbooks, we started to break it into, well, if you have an acute viral infection, you don't need um, uh, antibiotics, but if it becomes bacterial, then uh, you need to be on some antibiotics. And so um, that acute bacterial infection talked about maybe 12 of these 15% of people who didn't follow that pathway I just told you, they would get a fever on the first day or two. Um, then, you know, the fever started to come down. Um, they started to get that runny nose, kind of get pressure all over their face. But then a day or three or four, that pressure started to, you know, be really bad on one particular sinus of their place or their osteomedal complex on one side. And then they started to get a fever again. And now they're growing, blowing out a lot of green and yellow and thick mucus and the stair five or six. And they're like, I thought this was going to get better. My whole family's gotten better. And now I'm still, you know, really sick. And these people are getting angry and frustrated. We called that secondary, um, you know, fever, and that secondary, now you're blowing out a lot of yellow and green to be, oh, you're one of those 15% whose viral infection turned into a bacterial infection. You are that 15% who would benefit from antibiotics. Sorry, we didn't give it to you earlier, but we're going to give it to you now and you're going to get better. Um, and so that was the textbook definition of a acute viral uh, rhinosinusitis, acute bacterial rhinosinusitis, ABRS. And then finally, in reality, what is happening um, is, um, and, you know, honestly, not even a lot of my colleagues understand this. I, I learned this from working in one of the top research labs on this question. Uh, that virus, when it infects our body, we, we have a virus, we, um, uh, let's assume, and you know, Chris and I were talking about it. Let's assume this we've never seen this virus before. We could have three situations. We've never seen this virus before. We saw it a long time ago, so we have low antibodies against it, or we just recently saw it, so we have high antibodies against it. That's the reality that COVID has taught us. But let's assume we've never seen this virus before. So we get this virus and it starts to replicate in our body and it causes uh, for the first three or four days, nothing. It stops our innate immune system. We It causes no symptoms. It's just replicating in our body quietly. Then uh, that virus, when it gets into its phase two system of it's turned off our innate immune system, what it does is it upregulates cognate receptors in our, um, our, our sinuses to cause um, bacteria that are typically living in our mouth. Our mouth is a very special area. Our body, in fact, likes bacteria in our mouth because it's expecting us to get so much bacteria in that, but our whole GI tract is trillions of bacteria. And our it's a very special place for bacteria that our body just doesn't care if you have bacteria. In fact, it wants a level of anaerobic bacteria on the surface and then a ton of aerobic bacteria on the surface on, on top of that. But our viruses then trick our body to get some of these bacteria from that special tract to spread into areas where our body doesn't want it. Our body does not like bacteria close to our brain. So if it spreads to our ears or to our sinuses, our, you know, our, a different part of our immune system starts to freak out about that. That happens 100% of the time. That is part of the natural course of a viral infection. So it's never viral or bacterial. It's always both. 
But 85% of the time, our body um, detects this bacteria. It revs up our immune system. Our body clears these films of bacteria before they can uh, take root in our ears or our sinuses. And then, oh, by the way, we are also making some interferon gamma and, you know, IL-1 and uh, TNF-alpha and our body's like, oh, and we have a viral problem here. That's the root cause. So our body starts creating antibodies against the virus, starting to wipe out the virus too. Not completely, like to your point, you know, the virus uh, with our ultra-sensitive DNA analysis now, we know it lingers in our body. The COVID test can stay positive for a month. Uh, rhinovirus test will be, but for the most part, they, they're they done replicating and the viruses are losing the war. So our body 85% um, time takes care of that bacterial spread and starts attacking the virus. And we take about two to three weeks before we're almost done, but we could still even have a month of, you know, long COVID, long viral symptoms where our immune system got revved up and now our joints hurt or, you know, our smell's not as good. We could have all sorts of problems. In the 15% of people um, uh, that we used to call acute bacterial, it's because our bacteria said, oh my God, we're getting attacked. We didn't even want to be here, but now that you're attacking us, we're forming this fortress, this biofilm. We are stopping division. We are just we are happy in our sinus now. We are not leaving. We didn't want to be here, but we're not leaving. We're just staying here. Our body's attacking them. They're just totally in this, you know, uh, you know 300 movie shield. Like they are, they've stopped division. <laughs> they're, they're sharing their resistance genes across different species. And then our body just is constantly throwing white blood cell after white blood cell into the battle. We're making all this yellow and green. The bacteria are, are for the most part, not dividing. If they were dividing and winning, that's like, you know, Chris sees these, those kids are in the ICU with sepsis, with, you know, a terrible fulminant bacterial infection, and they often will die if a bacteria right. can spread like crazy. But the vast majority of people, this bacteria is in a film, not doing anything. And, um, we now are like, Dr. Magritte, I can't kill this bacteria. We prescribe antibiotics. Aha, now that is the weapon. Now we're attacking them and we have antibiotics in our bloodstream. This film slowly starts to shrink. But if this film has been a, was allowed to sit for like two weeks before you got antibiotics and it got bigger and bigger, then you might need two weeks of antibiotics to get rid of the film. If you got it with antibiotics right away, then it might only need five days. But that's what's this huge variability and we get a lot of people who say, I was doing well when you gave me the antibiotics, but the day you stopped, I started getting worse again. It's because they had grown this big biofilm of bacteria that we only reduced 3% a day to get rid of, you know, almost, but then it just started right back again. And so in reality, these 15% of people who we call acute bacterial rhinosinus either had a small film form because they got some anatomic obstruction and the mucus gets all stuck there, or they have some defect of their immune system. They don't make manospining lectin, you know, manospining lectin deficiency, or they have some post-defense peptide deficiency, or they get some reason that this bacteria could form. Then with antibiotics, we typically clear it, but then we now have one to 2% of people who we either didn't give enough antibiotics for a long term, the patient didn't take it, they took one day of it and they, you know, didn't take the whole seven day course or whatever we were, give up, gave them for or they have some immune defect, and then that can perpetuate into this terrible problem where the bacteria now have set up shop in areas that they aren't allowed to exist. Beautiful.
I love it, man. That's what everyone needs to hear because there's a reason and a why behind it. And the science behind it to me is the key. And you stated offline, and I'm going to let you say that story. Why does the virus do this to the bacteria? What's the evolutionary advantage of the virus making the bacteria fight the way they do? Yeah, that's a, a you know, something like, for example, COVID. Um, COVID, we know, has about 29,000 base pairs. It only produces 29 proteins, of which seven proteins do we know actually do anything. But what it, but a virus basically does is they create this little, you know, membrane. There is this circle, little virion particle. They land in our nose, and they, they, they got to do everything they can to start the replication cycle. So they invade the cell, and their entire hope is that they can mess with our RNA and um, our uh, take over our protein factories to start making more and pumping them out. And that's really hard. And most of the time it doesn't work and, or it doesn't trigger like that ping pong nuclear reaction. It only does it for a little bit, just doesn't keep going. But if it can do that, um, then it's uh, only, though it has two things that it has to worry about. One is suppress any of the smoke signals that a cell might be get telling to activate our type one immunity to come protect us. So it uh, dampens all the local cytokines that are typically produced by a cell. And the only thing it needs to do is it needs to upregulate a receptor on our cell that allows bacteria to come from our throat to uh, where it doesn't belong. So it needs some time to grow and it needs an escape plan to get out of the body. And so it grows quietly for three or four days. You know, not all it's doing is suppressing the immune system and replicating. That's it. And then when it spreads into our lungs, our uh, second wave into our deeper bronchi, and then third wave is deeper on our body, all, on that time, it needs it needs a delay. It can't happen right away. It needs a delay uh, or else it doesn't have enough time to divide and then start the spread, but it needs to replicate and grow to a big mass. And then the, it sends the bacteria from our throat into our nose. Our body detects those bacteria. We start making thick mucus, we're blowing, we got snot all over, we're blowing it all over, we're coughing. And that um, reversal of mucociliary, uh, our mucociliary flow to go now the other way, we're just blowing, we're spreading. The virus now just gets a free ride out of there and it hasn't been damaged, it hasn't been touched. Our body you know, often hasn't even detected the virus and now it's spreading. In fact, we have learned that's one of the um, terrible things of, of COVID and HIV. There are a lot of patients who have HIV. Their body doesn't even mount an immune response to the virus. Their entire body is filled with virus. And every time they aerosolize, they're aerosolizing a different mutant. And so this virus is spreading around like crazy. And so that's what we have. We have learned so much about viruses in the last two or three years. But um, viruses use bacteria as their patsies to get out and create damage. And so now everyone can sit there and as you're imagining in your little head, you know, what is going on visually, because obviously we can't see this, but you you can imagine that these little kids are walking around and why kids are the perfect Petri dishes for spreading viruses is because kids don't, you know, control how they cough, sneeze, touch. I mean, if you all you have to do is go to Walmart, a toy store, wherever, and just stand there for three hours in the winter. And just watch how many children walk over, rub their nose, touch a toy. Another kid walks over, touches that toy, touches their nose. It is the perfect way to spread through contact. But then, oh, by the way, 
two kids are standing next to each other talking and one sneezes right up the other kid's nose. And so this is the natural way that viruses evolve to hijack not only the bacteria, but our actual mechanisms for sneezing in order yeah. to replicate themselves on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And the only yeah. way we stop this, we proved through COVID, was to stop existing and living. So we're not doing that ever again, folks. So get busy using viruses as the way they are. We'll live with them. Keep oh. your immune system in good shape. All yeah. right, Shu, I love it. All right, a couple of last things, because I, I really want to touch on some more treatment sides of this. But before we go to the treatment world, is yeah. there any new data? I know the microbiome of the lung and now the microbiome of the GI tract are getting a, a massive play in the literature. Yeah. And I, I'm following both. I'm going to interview Dr. Marcel Nold coming up from Australia in a little bit about the microbiome of the lungs in kids yeah. especially. But what's the story now in 2023 with the microbiome of the sinus and ear cavities is there anything that that we can glean from that data now or is it really just too early to know yeah um i i think the uh common uh understanding that the microbiome and our microbial ecology of our sinuses are very important is becoming well known throughout our body and um, probably the expert in our field is a doctor named martin de Rossier from he's in uh, canada um, he's done a lot of work um, looking at the microbiome. Um, we typically have in a healthy human uh, with no sinus problems, a very diverse ecology of bacteria uh, and that live in our sinuses, but they have a very low bacterial load, maybe 10 to the third per um, whatever unit of measurement they look at. Um, and then as we get thicker or we have a lot of cases, like to your point, we cringe when we give antibiotics. When we give antibiotics to people, we are reducing that ecology, uh, de I mean, undiversifying the species of bacteria and allowing hardier bacteria that are re more resistant to antibiotics and more pathogenic, frankly, to increase the percentage of population that they're on the surface and increase their numbers. And so um, we have looked at... Um, uh, certain bacteria that seem to be um, uh, more um, uh, related, associated with healthy sinuses. And those bacteria have been like Lactobacillus sockii, which is a common milk bacteria and a common bacteria in yogurt. And so a lot of people uh, think those bacteria are healthy for our sinuses. Um, and uh, certain bacteria, Carinobacterium tuberculosis, stericum, those are more associated with you know unhealth but the problem from the treatment side is we've been trying to treat people with probiotics. We just, I haven't seen any data that it's made a huge impact. Again, I think the problem from, this is me speculating, is that healthy bacteria to us are the bacteria we saw between the ages of zero and three. And, uh, and our antibodies are very specific to those particular bacteria, if we could repopulate our sinuses with those bacteria, and I often tell people like, go have dinner with your mom, you know, the bacteria that are growing on her pots and, you know, in her house, if you have that chance are probably what are comfort food to you for a good reason. Um, but when you buy a synthetic bacteria, it's likely got its own DNA pat signature for a patent. Nobody else in the country makes it. You've probably never seen that bacteria in your life. And so if you now put that bacteria into your sinuses, you probably have an, you know, an antibody immune response to that bacteria. So it's harmful, frankly. And so um, we haven't seen a lot of 
I haven't a lot of positive therapeutic benefits yet from it, but we definitely uh, have seen that um, healthier microbiomes are ones that have been untouched with antibiotics that have, you know, a lot of diphtheroids and um, uh, or sorry, um, uh, uh, bacteria that are, um, you know, wimpy and are associated with health. And um, uh, people who have had several and several courses of antibiotics have, you know, maybe only 20 species of bacteria in their sinuses, and they're all at much higher levels, and they're really hard to kill. And so um, maintaining uh, good sinus bacterial health is really important. And, and there is some data that is encouraging that the longer you wait, and if you can avoid antibiotics for a long time, your microbiome and your ecology do start to return back to a healthier type of association. Yeah, and I tend to agree implicitly. I think that the even the data, which I think is the best studied so far as the GI microbiome, most of the data that I've read to date, I'm not thrilled with probiotics. I used to be a big probiotic fan, and now I'm falling into more of the prebiotic. I think there's some interesting data now coming out about postbiotics, and we'll see how that comes out with somebody taking the bacteria, culturing them, killing all the bacteria, and just taking the metabolites that are left over and utilizing that for gut health. But we'll see. But oh, to your point, yeah. to your point, I'm not convinced that doing anything externally for the cyanotic sino or pulmonary microbiomes makes any sense yet, especially not in the current science, but um, yeah. yeah. So, so interesting to follow the data nonetheless. So let's, yeah. let's go back to treatment unless you got oh, well, something else to add. One point, if I could add on that, that was interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, the, I saw one study on potential causes of long COVID that said uh, COVID depletes a chemical called urolithin A, um, which is this very difficult back, um, protein that's used in our mitochondria that are only made from precursor molecules being metabolized by healthy gut bacteria, gardosis or something. Um, and so these uh, the free chemicals come from pomegranate juice, uh, apples, raspberries, walnuts, and pecans. And uh, you eat these uh, fruits or these nuts and we get some of these um, precursor molecules, which are then converted by healthy gut bacteria into these urolithins that our mitochondria need. But so it points to more evidence that, you know, a healthy diet has tremendous value and the, and they have an interplay with our microbiome, but how to manipulate that, our, I feel like our science isn't there yet. Yeah, and to your point, prebiotics, the key diversity, uh, randomness of use. I am a big fan of not eating the same thing every day. It should be a whole food. It should be something that is clean. It should be uh, differential by the experience. So pomegranates one day, citrus the next day, apples the next day for your fruits and keep alternating and then change up your nuts, change up your meats, change up, constantly changing it up so that you're getting metabolites for all kinds of processes in the in the body, not just for the sinuses or the GI tract or the nerves. I mean, that's yeah. to me, the science of happiness and health. So that, that makes the most sense. All right. Now let's pivot back again. So you have acute sinusitis, you know, it's, it's bacterial in origin. We put somebody on an antibiotic. Do you, or do you not recommend intranasal steroids at that point? I know my opinion, but I love your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, from meningitis data, we know that steroids and antibiotics are very helpful together. The problem with our sinuses is the over-the-counter intranasal steroids, Flonase, Nasonex, 
those just have no distribution to our paranasal sinus cavities. Those just hit the front of your septum and your anterior inferior turbinate. A little bit of it dribbles down the back of your throat. And none of that steroid is actually getting to our osteomedial complex or uh, further our frontals or our maxillary sinuses. So to the extent that a steroid would be able to shrink some of that mucosa and help some of that trap mucus get out of there and some of that bacterial mixed mucus get out, it would be beneficial. There's There is this new steroid called Exhance, which is this exhalational delivery. And so it aerosolizes a steroid and it actually gets up higher. That does have some good clinical data that it helps for an acute sinus infection. But for the most part, it's... Uh, it's almost worthless. You know, any yeah. over any intranasal steroid you can buy over the counter or um, uh, the common ones that are being given that don't require a pre-certification are not helpful in an acute situ situation. And so, um, so no, I don't ever prescribe uh, an intranasal steroid. Um, you know, I, I try the uh, kind of our text. I, I honestly don't see a lot of acute sinusitis, they go to their primary care doctors. But if I, you know, my family and friends or people, I try to keep them off antibiotics for the first three or four days to see if they're going to be okay. And if they look at all like they're not going to clear the infection, uh, then I start them on something. How about back to that earlier question, uh, sinus rinse for two days? Um, yeah, no. And an acute sinus infection, I do tell them to do a steamy shower. And again, I don't like the sinus rinse bottles. I think that's too much volume of fluid, but I will tell them some ocean nasal spray could be helpful. Ocean nasal spray. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And so right, cool. uh, if their mucus is getting thick, especially. Right. Any pharmaceutical grade uh, mucolytics like mucinex, uh, guaifen you know, yeah. guaifenesin? It, uh, you know, it just to my knowledge, doesn't hurt anything. Um, but, you know, I have no problems with people using guaifenesin. Um, X-Clear is a xylitol, it's a sugar alcohol. You know this as well, um, uh, that uh, bacteria have a tough time metabolizing. There's one study that showed that that was kind of helpful. So if they need to use a nasal spray, I'll tell them to maybe try X-Clear, which is a xylitol, but um, ocean nasal spray and um, uh, uh, Tylenol, guaifenesin, mucinex, um, those are all fine for me to use. Yeah. Any, any, uh, vitamins, herbals, anything you use add to the mix for immune boosting or not in general. So again, you don't do a lot of acute stuff. So I'm, I'm probably yeah, just reach, yeah, reaching I, here I, a little. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's a big vitamin C mega dosing vitamin C. I, right. I know that was a fad for us for a while. I, I haven't seen any luck with that, but I have, um, been struck by how many people I then get a vitamin D level on and it's very low. And, um, or uh, insufficient or def deficient. So I have thought that if somebody's getting more than one sinus infection to maybe, at least in Columbus, have them, especially if they're a dark-skinned person, to have them consider uh, uh, taking vitamin D supplements or checking a level there. That's that's one uh, area that I think could be of help. So Yeah. Yeah, I tend to agree. And I, in kids, at least, especially if they've had recurrent disease, I check zinc as well, because I That's find that if their zinc levels are low, especially if it's red blood cell, so it's a 120 day cycle, those yeah. kids, when I put them back on zinc, they tend to do better. Um, I got you. Yeah. And, and so I do check some yeah. micronutrients I, I, in kids. I, that's, I have seen some good data for zinc and infections too. I will make a caveat of 
intranasal zinc is really toxic to your uh, neuroepithelium. So I tell people to avoid any intranasal zinc sprays, but uh, an oral zinc pill, you know, yep. does make some sense. Yeah. Yep. And that tends to be what we recommend too. All right, let's pivot. Um, otitis media, kids, you know, again, I am, I hate antibiotics and chronic use. When, when, and if do you recommend folks get PE tubes? And again, I know you don't do a ton of this, but in yeah. your past, in your past life, when you saw more folks at, at, at nationwide children's or yeah. your other experiences, is yeah. it, you know, earlier is better because you get less antibiotics because they're pretty benign. Is it not? I mean, where's your, where do you land on that world? I, um, over my career, I'd be honestly have become less and less enthusiastic about PE tubes. Um, I think, uh, I think seem to just cause more as many problems as benefits. Um, it's really um, definitely you know, Down syndrome children, people who have an anatomic defect, they need tubes and they need them early. And so do those earlier, uh, you know, combine them with adenoidectomy, those kids do better. Um, you know, in the suburbs, we see a lot of people who are, are moms and dads who just are intolerant of their child child in pain and screaming, you know, after one or two infections. And so the more and more uh, you can encourage them that they're going to outgrow this um, and, uh, you know, just hang in there, um, that that's better, you know. Um, but um, the, if you then, you know, there is a group of people, who, for whatever reason, we don't understand, who really do get true otitis media, you know, and I, I like to know that they're seeing a pediatrician or somebody that I um, I know is actually getting a good look in their ear. Um, you know, if they're just going to an urgent care and being told they have uh, otitis media, I'm a little I'm a little more skeptical. But there is a group that are truly getting you know three or four infections, and those groups, I like. For me, it's more earlier in the it was uh, in the fall because the tube is really going to give you a lot of benefit during the winter months. But if we're coming into the spring, you know, that might be the time when they don't need them now. Coming into the summer summer months, and um, ages too. Like I feel like by the time you're three, your your eustachian tubes are starting to be able to do the job. So as the closer you're getting to three, you know, try to avoid the tube if they're really getting a lot at the age of one you know you're going to get a couple of years of benefit from those tubes so i've skewed more towards the one-year-old the you know one and a half year old and if it's you know evident in the fall that it's going to happen but but tubes create you know perforations they create biofilms that can you know recolonize your middle ear space they um they uh cause uh you know the chronic uh uh otitis external media external your ear is draining it's just as problematic to the parent as you know their kid in pain with the bad otitis media so i i've become less and less enthusiastic about tubes in my career yeah and i agree entirely i think mike Pickicaro, who's a infectious disease guy up in in rochester just wrote a paper recently and noted that if you can just wait it out most of these kids stop this stuff by age three so he he agrees entirely with you on the timing and i would agree too i think in my career the only times i want to put tubes in kids is if the parents refuse to do the simple things to reduce the risk of getting bacterial infections in the first place which we covered through this whole thing healthy diet, avoiding dairy, you know, uh, taking the kid out of daycare if you have to, do everything you can to mitigate that risk. And if they won't, and the kid's on their third course of antibiotics in six months, I will recommend tubes because I think for me, the downstream risk of less antibiotics uh, 
is is better that to have tubes than to take the risk of having more antibiotics and then end up with autoimmune disease or other things when you're older. I mean, this is going to be post pediatric world. You know, it won't be under my purview in general. Although we have two 18 year olds now with multiple sclerosis, so I mean, the world is changing in a in a really dramatically bad way. But I I always err on the side of I would much rather have less antibiotics in the in the universe than than more. And yeah. so I'll lean on tubes only if that's my my yeah. last resort. But to your that's point, right. I agree. I'm I'm less enthusiastic about all this stuff if we can get people to do their job. That's right. Now there's one caveat I didn't mention is if their hearing is significantly reduced, I do think um, being able to hear at between age one and age two is really important for brain development. And so if there is a significant decrease in hearing, or there's any mention that they have speech delay, or, you know, uh, it's having some neurologic impact for them. Now I'm a little more um, inclined to, you know, consider tubes, just really, it's almost for the first one. So I can suck out that thick effusion that's in their ear. Um, yep. I feel like it, uh, is a huge value to, to children, but you're right. Um, you know, chronic antibiotics are bad. Uh, tubes are bad. You're, and you know, the, individual family situation, you know, the dynamic, um, how, how good are the care are they going to get during those acute episodes? Those all factor into the choice. Yeah. We're making broad statements for sure with not the ends of one, every decision we make in general as clinicians, you and I both make it on the end of one. So the kid in front of us with the parents, I mean, we're, we're truly are overgeneralizing here, but that's the only way you can do a podcast. And when we couldn't do an end of one here. Right. So yeah, I, I entirely agree. So you know, I want to touch on one last thing because I think it's sort of fascinating. I know you've done a, a, a deep dive into this too. So loss of smell in COVID. What's yeah. the story? What happened? It, yeah, it's very, um, very interesting. There's a um, a really good scientist, uh, Alex Hummel, who's a, in Germany, who has been a really, really the for leader for our knowledge about sense of smell. And, um, you know, Colombia, a lot of places in this country have really been studying COVID and smell loss. But COVID, um, the immune uh, reaction, the type 1 mediated immune reaction that COVID induces when our immune system does, in fact, detect COVID, is just violent. I mean, it causes really bad cytotoxicity. So COVID... Um, binds to the ACE receptor, which is not actually found on any neurons, thank God. And so, um, uh, interestingly, COVID binds to these um, sustenance tacular cells. So our smell, we've learned so much about smell. There's a couple of Nobel Prizes on smell, but the way uh, we have smell is our body creates this in very uh, interesting, um, it's not like a lock and key, like an antibody. It's more like a um, creating a violin you know, with a chamber where, you know, our body detects the kind of notes that are created when a molecule bounces in this chamber. So it's like if you had a violin and uh, something was bouncing or a wind chime, you know, a certain breeze will cause um, a certain sound in the wind chime and you can detect how fast the breeze is going. That's what allows us to have such uh, specificity and be able to detect, you know, a million different types of smells with only a thousand or so different odorants. But um, what COVID, in order to create these chambers where these small molecules, um, uh, the way we figured that sound is deep, deep flies into the mosquito and it uh, uh, messes up their smell completely. It makes them not be able to smell blood at all. 
And so that's why a mosquito doesn't want to bite us because it can no longer smell any blood. But COVID binds to these sustentacular cells and destroys that chamber completely. And so it just, it's like somebody comes and takes all the pegs and your violin strings just, you know, curl and become nothing. And so we lose everything about smell. Um, it is extremely violent and it just destroys our architecture of our um, neurons completely. Not really just damaging the neurons, just the complete architecture. So the nerves are all no longer really doing anything, working together. Um, Alex Hummel, what he has learned is um, humans, um, the one area where we have the most active stem cells in our body are our nose. Every animal on this planet, except for probably humans, rely on smell and sound almost more than sense, particularly all aquatic animals. They are completely exquisite in smell. And so our body has so much of our evolution devoted to smell. One of the um, benefits of that is we have so many active stem cells regenerating our smell nerves and making sure that these violins are constantly being tuned and you know in good order, working order. So uh, bloodhounds have 30 million neurons per um, their olfactor epithelium. We only have one, but we fundamentally work the same way. If you take a human and you do olfactory training and you give us different scents to smell, um, our stem cells go crazy and they create violins to be able to smell that smell. So even though COVID destroys so many people's smell, um, that particularly the ancestral strain, you know, the initially that was coming around did, um, if you do smell therapy and you constantly smell your favorite smells and you look at them and you're like, oh, this is a rose and I'm smelling it, I can't uh, uh, smell anything, but I remember a rose and I remember what it smells. Our body recreates our um, neural neural pathways to basically restore a lot of that smell. Um, and so it was just very interesting how exquisite our body's ability to smell is and how important smell is throughout the body. Basically, I've taken home from this that everyone, you know, talking about diet health, not only that, everyone should smell their foods and really inhale five things a day every day. It helps us for our memory. Like when you walk into your office or your home, our body is intrinsically smelling your room. So it now knows where all the light switches are and whatnot. If you go to a foreign country, you will know you're in a different room because that your house smells different. Our, it, it's, it's so important for preventing dementia. It's so important for keeping our brain healthy because the cytokines that are produced from those global basal, uh, you know, GBCs and HBCs that are those stem cells are, uh, Olfactor neurons are also the only nerve, cranial nerves in our body that are direct extensions from our brain. And so they're actually brain neurons that dive through these holes in our skull into our nose. So if we can stimulate them with stem cells, we can diffuse some of those stem cells up into our frontal lobe and our you know gyrus and keep our brain healthy. So all of us should be constantly sniffing things five, 10 times a day. It'll improve our smell and our overall brain health. I love it. You heard it here. What what an awesome, awesome, you know, you add that to tasting bitter stuff, which helps your sinuses and there's all kinds of stuff going on there. I mean, we should be activating all five senses every, you know, every single day, all the time. Going back to, again, evolutionarily, there was a reason behind why we had the ability to smell. Why? Because it prevented you from dropping dead when somebody came to eat you. Now we don't use them as much other than 
you know, randomly for certain things. But to your point, I think it was all involved in the evolutionary process of survival. So it has to have an effect on immune and immune function has to have an effect on arousal, sleep, everything. Yeah. We just don't understand it all yet. And I think, you know, we're seeing all this data now with the visual cortex, how if you don't stare at the horizon for long periods of time, it messes with myopia, all this other. Yeah. So we're on the front edge of a huge wave, especially when we're going to add in your favorite AI world what we're going to be learning when we can use AI and leverage AI against understanding some of these nuances of human health. So yeah, man. Yeah. Any last, any last thoughts? I'm going to, I'm no, going to ask you one no, question. I, um, I just, uh, you know, want your viewers to know how impressed I am with you, Chris. I really think you are one of the pioneers in trying to understand the big picture, you know, like we, um, uh, uh, it's very easy for doctors we get put into a system where all the paths have been plowed for us. And to, we're told, you know, think this way. When you see a patient, do a review of systems, do a physical exam. Uh, here, pick from one of these 10 diagnosis codes and then give them, we created a guideline for you and just give them what you think, uh, what we told you, you know, fits with this diagnosis code. And so many doctors um, get stuck into that. Well, this is how somebody else wants me to think. I have just always been impressed by kind of you and your stubbornness, frankly, you're like, no, I refuse to do what is, you know, the, what the government or the world thinks I need to think. I'm really thinking about the health of my children, the whole picture, and I'm really looking at it from every angle and what we're doing isn't working very well. So something needs to change. And you have just always inspired me to think bigger, broader, and um, do great things for the health of your patients. So I appreciate that. Yeah, really enjoyed. But, those you. are kind words, kind words, Shu. I appreciate it. All right, last question. You know, I ask this of all my guests. You get a golden ticket, and that golden ticket can be dropped off at Congress or the president, and they have to act on it. Mm -hmm. uh, while you're thinking of your what you want your golden ticket, I'll tell you mine. I tell everybody the same thing. I have one massive struggle with our society, and that is what we feed our kids. I would 100% change school food to be only nutritious whole foods. They have no option for junk food. If they want to have junk food, it's going to have to be at home under the purview of their parents, but not by the state government who's providing 66% of the nutrition for most of these children. Mm -hmm. So that being said, that would be my ask. I would go down there and demand every single school have a kitchen, chefs, the whole nine yards. What would you ask for if you could give the golden ticket in? Gosh, yeah, I, um, you know, I, my golden ticket, I think it's less ambitious than yours, but, um, if I could give a golden ticket, I think it would be to um, have the government break up the way we pay doctors, which is based on procedures or um, rewarding us for seeing somebody who's sick a lot of times in our office and really creating a situation where we got um, uh, rewarded for talking to other physicians and um, for improving someone's health, if yeah. you know, and for however that might be, but if somebody came into your office and their blood pressure was high and you got it low, you know, that's why you should be getting paid, not because you saw them four times to give them a blood pressure medicine that might not have helped. That if we could change the way we rewarded physicians to collaborate more and be more directly rewarded for truly improving people's health, I think our country wastes so much money, 17% of our GDP on a system that doesn't really 
improve the health of our Americans very much. We are amazing if you're about to die or you're in the ICU and, you know, or if you need a big brain operation, I, I'm well trained to do that. But, you know, like we we're saying, we don't get rewarded at all to talk to somebody for 10 minutes about their diet or vitamin D or, you know, how they could be healthy. It's really a, a huge cost to us. And unless you're somebody yeah. who's so passionate about it, like you are, Chris, um, it's not financially rewarded in our country for our doctors to spend time preventing health problems. Yeah. 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 I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, I love what you said offline earlier when you had a patient who had you know, the uh, uh, fungal sinusitis and their home was dysfunctional. The entire wall having mold on it and $8,000 to get them somewhere else to live versus $20,000 surgery. The cost benefit, they're simple. You get them out of the house, the disease in general is going to be mitigated. But yeah. yet instead, we choose only to do the surgery that probably is going to end up coming back because they're not out of the home there in the first place, which That's gets right. the social determinants of need. So I'm with you. The system's got to change. We need disruptors like you in there saying, hey, we're not doing this anymore. And, and you know me, I'm going to keep screaming from the rooftops every day. Yeah. So, brother, appreciate you That's and yes, all of your wisdom. Pleasure. Yeah, you've got it. You're, you're my my. I'm so th thrilled that the guests get to hear and learn from one of the best in the field, and and to learn what it takes to do what we need to do to care for our kids and our adults in this space the way they need to be. So, yeah, man, appreciate you very much, Drew. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Bye. Well, there you have it. A deep and wide-ranging conversation with one of the experts in the field of sinus disease. And again, I'm all about the upstream realities of why we're developing these problems in the first place, because if we can figure that out, as stated throughout this entire podcast, now we have a chance to mitigate risk, stop problems from showing up before they show up, useless antibiotics, therefore, hopefully get to a point where we're not developing more chronic disease of aging based on immune dysregulation between the microbiomes of our body and our actual innate and adaptive immune systems. So this was a long podcast, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time deconstructing it right now. Just suffice it to say that the lifestyle factors that we talk about in most cases of disease etiology are at play here. And we got some nuanced understanding as to what things are more beneficial than others as far as treatment modalities, as well as the upstream targets to hit. So let's pay more attention as best we can as a society of people trying to do the best we can for ourselves, our kids, and our loved ones. Because, you know, that's what makes a society great. As always, if you love this podcast, please rate it on Apple Reviews. Share it with any friends you want. It will remain free to all as long as I'm in charge. So with that, have a great day. Hug those kids and just take care. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or any other healthcare professional, and it is not to be used to diagnose or treat any health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of any kind of a provider or patient relationship. Have a great day.